Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue a series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on May 9, 2021, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is Elementary and discusses Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Here now, the inspired word of God. Therefore, Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we look into your word, we ask very simply that you'd be pleased to open our eyes our ears and our hearts, that, Father, that we would understand, we would see, hear, and understand what you have to teach us, and that teaching, Father, that you would bring us to conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I had really wanted to open the sermon this morning with these words. Elementary, my dear Watson. (laughs) Those are some of the most identifiable words spoken by Sherlock Holmes. Unfortunately, they were never written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. They never appear in print in any of the 56 short stories or four novels about Sherlock Holmes. He did utter similar expressions that indicated that his powers of deduction were nothing extraordinary, but simply the result of applying the basic principles of forensic and logic to the crime he was investigated. But elementary, it's a familiar word. The first school our children attend are usually called an elementary school. In most science classrooms, we have a a periodic table of the elements prominently displayed. So the word elementary is certainly, it's not foreign to us. In our text for the morning, the author says he is going to leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and move on. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, now this verse must be taken in context of not only what precedes it, but what follows it to really understand what the author is driving at. Remember in chapter 5, the author severely admonishes the Hebrews for being dull of hearing. Uh, They had not progressed in in their Christian faith as they should have. Uh, They may even have had need for further instruction 
in the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Now, while the New American Standard Bible uses the same word in, in, in chapter 5, verse 12 and 6, 1, it's not the same word in the Greek. There's slight difference. The, in 5, 12, the, the Greek word is stoikion, which means basics, uh, like uh, an alphabet or something standing in a row. In fact, a, a good translation would be uh, the ABCs of the gospel. That's what the writer is alluding to. He's, in, in essence, if we go back to chapter 5, he's saying, do I really need to teach you the ABCs of Christianity over again? Clearly, they were lacking in certain areas of growth. For following this ad admonition is the warning of the great apostasy that we examined a couple of weeks ago. But remember, as we progress in chapter 6, he says, but I think better of you. He's convinced that they were true believers. But they were lacking in maturity. He tells them they must press on to maturity. That's one of the major purposes, not only of this particular text, but the whole of the epistle to the Hebrews is to push the Hebrew Christians onto maturity in Christ. They were lapsing back into types and shadows. And in order to bring them to maturity, he says, I have to leave these elementary teachings about Christ and, and move on to the meat of the word. And that's what brings us to, to verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance, etc., this time, the word elementary, it's a different. It's not the same that he used in chapter 5. It's the word arche, which means the first, and especially in the present context. In other words, he's saying to the Hebrews, if you want to press on to maturity, you must leave the first or the basic principles and move on to the meat of the word. Now, we don't have to guess what these basic principles are, because he lays them out for us. We see six things laid out. Press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from, from dead works, of faith in God, of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Look at the words that he uses, though. Not laying again a foundation. Uh, just a couple of thoughts there, if I may. First, the author is not negating the importance of the foundational or basic principles. He, he's not putting them down. They are absolutely necessary and essential. Uh, in fact, using the construction analogy, the, the foundation is an extremely important part of the structure. And for Jesus himself uh, used the analogy of, of building on the rock rather than on the sand. We all know what happens if the foundation is faulty or is not set on the firm ground. You make a lot of money by setting up a, a concession stand near the Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> or closer to home, every time we have a major nor'easter or a hurricane, what happens out on Dune Road in West Hampton? The houses built on the sand fall. Hmm, where have I heard that before? but they keep building them there. But in the Christian life, 
a poor foundation leads to error and, and even into apostasy, which is what the author warns in this very chapter. So the author is not demeaning the foundational principles. He's saying that the foundation is not enough. We don't build a foundation and live in it. We put a, a house on it and live in the house. And in verse 1, he says it very clearly, not laying again a foundation. Once the foundation is laid, it's start time to start the construction. We don't build another foundation. So what are the doctrines the author calls the foundation? Repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, and eternal judgment. This morning we're going to begin to look at these basic doctrines. Uh, we're only going to get to repentance this morning. And then we're going to examine some of these basic principles before we move on to the deeper things in this book. So the first thing we're going to be looking at is repentance. The commands to repent are numerous in the scripture, which show us basically the necessity of this doctrine of repentance. Just look at some of the commands. I'm going to read just a few of them. Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, the first message of Jesus after his baptism in Matthew chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. And then he continues. And Jesus says it in very plain language. In Luke chapter 13, he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice what he says. Without true repentance, you will perish. That means we should place a high priority on the teaching and the preaching of repentance within the church. So let's ask the question, what is repentance? Louis Burkhoff, professor of systematic theology, gives a, an excellent definition of biblical repentance. He says, repentance is that change wrought in the conscious life of the sinner by which he turns from sin. And he continues in his explanation, and he tells us something very important. According to scripture, says the professor, repentance is holy and inward act and should not be confounded with the change of life that proceeds from it. Confession of sin and reparation are wrongs, of wrongs are fruits of repentance. Notice carefully what he says. Repentance is not an outward action at all. Outward actions are manifestations of the inward change that has already occurred in the repentant sinner. When a, sin when a sinner confesses his sin, he is not repenting, he is showing the fruits of repentance. More on that a little bit later. But this is an important distinction that we need to make. Understanding this point goes a long way to understanding how Judas could be remorseful regret what he had done, return the money, and yet had never truly repented. 
If we examine the biblical doctrine of repentance closely, we will see that it has three basic elements. First, there's an intellectual element. There is a recognition of sin uh, in, in your life and an understanding of true guilt. That's why the preaching of the word is essential for salvation and for true repentance. Romans 7, 7, the Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So the mind or the intellect is certainly involved in true repentance. Because knowledge of sin is an important element of salvation. If I do not know something is a sin, I'm not going to admit that it's sin, because I don't know that. So knowledge is important, but it's not enough. It's not just knowledge, because there are those who, who know what sin is and yet do not repent. Paul says it in chapter 1 of the, God, the epistle to the Romans, verse 32. He says, and although they know the ordinance of God, Listen carefully to these words. They know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. So knowledge, while important, it's not enough. Secondly, there's an emotional element. Yes, there is an emotional element to it. There's a change in feelings. When the knowledge of sin comes, there must be a change in feelings for repentance to take place. There's, this is spoken of in Scripture. There's a couple of different words that are translated repentance. One of them is this metalomeia. All right? This can be expressed as sorrow or grief over sin. When a person sees his sin as an offense to a holy God... He must have sorrow. He must grieve and mourn over it. But even that's not enough. In fact, this is the word that's used to describe Judas. He had sorrow over his sin. He was remorseful for what he had done, but it was not a godly sorrow. It was a worldly sorrow, and it did not lead to repentance. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For this sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, uh, but regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So while true repentance must contain this element, this element alone does not mean that repentance is present. Because a godly sorrow over sin goes further than merely remorseful. There's also a volitional element. That means there's a change in the will. There is a change in purpose in the sinner. There is a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ to seek pardon and cleansing from sin. This is referred to in Scripture by that Greek word which most of you are familiar with, metanoia. Uh, means change of mind, meta, change, noose, change of mind. But in Scripture, the mind encompasses more than just the intellect. It encompasses the intellect, the emotions, the will. It puts it all together. And true repentance 
encompasses all three of these elements. All three must be present or biblical repentance has not taken place. But remember, repentance alone does not save. Repentance and faith are linked and can never be separated. The sinner is saved by the sovereign act of God. Spurgeon said it so well. He says, repentance is a part of salvation, and when Christ saves us, he saves us by making us repent, but repentance does not save, it is the work of God alone. In the great Puritan classic, The Doctrine of Repentance, written by Thomas Watson, he says this, Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. And he likens repentance to spiritual medicine with six ingredients. And they encompass the three elements that we just looked at. So I want to look at these six ingredients that Watson puts forth and examine each of us needs to examine ourselves according to the biblical doctrine of repentance as put forth in these marks. First, for true repentance, there must be sight of sin. The sinner must be able to see his sin as sin. He must recognize his condition before God as a sinner. Sin must be seen as an offense to a holy God. You must be able to see yourself as an enemy of God because of your sin or there will be no repentance. You know, most people, even those who admit that they are not perfect. You ever have somebody say, I'm not perfect, you know. No. I never knew that. Even those who admit they're not perfect and admit they're sinners, do not think they're that bad, because what do we have a tendency to do? We always compare ourselves to somebody who's worse than we are. I'm no Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Without this sight of sin, the person will never see himself in need of repentance. In the parable of the prodigal son, the scripture says he came to himself. In other words... God quickened his heart. He looked around and he saw his condition. And he says, the servants in my father's house are better than me. One of the problems is many people are wallowing in the pig pen of sin. And they're happy to be there because they don't even recognize they're in a pig pen. So it has to be sight of sin. Secondly, there has to be sorrow for sin. When a person truly sees his sin as sin, there must be sorrow that follows. We studied the Beatitudes a number of years ago in this church, and we saw that there was a progression of sorts. First, the sinner sees his poverty of spirit. That's his sight of sin. The second Beatitude says that he mourns over blessed those who mourn. That's a mark of repentance. This sorrow is an inward sorrow that is generated by, the, by God, the Holy Spirit. Godly sorrow runs deep into the depths of your being. This sorrow doesn't come from seeing the external effects of sin, but seeing how it has injured Christ. 
We get a, a glimpse of this in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And now listen to what it says. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This sorrow comes from the recognition that it is my sin that put Jesus on the cross. The focus is taken off anyone and everyone else, and it's on me. I am a sinner as I stand before God. And I recognize I am without excuse. And so I have that deep sorrow and grief from the inside of my heart. And that is why this sorrow is often accompanied by tears. Third, after this sorrow for sin, is confession of sin. This type of sorrow leads to confession. When the sinner sees himself as he truly is, he, he must come, he must confess, he has to, has to confess that he is a sinner. He, he bears his soul to his God because the weight of sin is so heavy. He understands the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only the confession of sin and true repentance removes the burden of sin. I, I think of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress as his burden is taken off his back. But we must also realize that there are many different reasons why people confess their sins. It's not always true repentance. Some people confess to alleviate their conscience. Some out of fear of getting caught. Some do it out of a sense of religious duty. But confession of sin that comes from true repentance is different from all of those. This confession is voluntary. The truly repentant sinner gushes like an open water main because it's coming from a heart that has been changed by God. It is a sincere confession coming from the sorrowful heart. Sometimes when people confess, there's almost a pride in what they've done. Not so the repentant sinner. His confession comes from a sorrowful heart, and his confession gets very particular. He knows the secret sins that no one else knows, and he confesses them as well. That's one of the, the things that a, a biblical counselor looks for when somebody is confessing sin. Is he only confessing what he's been caught? Or has his heart truly been pricked? And he's confessing everything. He doesn't try to minimize his sin. Very often a confessing person tries to limit his liability so that he doesn't look too bad. The repentant sinner wants none of that. He knows how bad he really is. And so when he confesses his sin, he's, he confesses them exactly as he sees them. And the repentant sinner will search his heart for those sins that he doesn't think, uh, that he doesn't think of right away. And maybe would never have been found out by anyone else in this life. But he wants to confess it all because his heart has been pricked. 
Fourth element or ingredient, as Thomas Watson puts it, is the shame for sin. Now this follows just what we've been speaking about. The sinner recognizes what his sin is, and that is that it's an offense to a holy God. He realizes what he has done, and there is great shame. Shame for being so sinful. Shame for being so guilty. The sinner doesn't merely have guilt feelings. He knows he has real guilt. And that brings a sense of shame. You know, Freudian psychology, one of the goals of Freudian psychology is to eliminate guilt feelings. Repentance eliminates real guilt. When a sinner sees himself as he really is, he sees the folly of his actions and so comes this great shame. And the awareness of sin and the shame that follows is a good thing. But it's only a temporary condition that ends with repentance when the real guilt is removed. Fifth ingredient is hatred for sin. This is one of the most crucial elements of true repentance. Sin appeals to the flesh. It's usually pleasurable to the senses. If it wasn't, it wouldn't have that much of appeal. But the repentant sinner sees that the pleasure of sin is fleeting at best. He sees himself like Moses did, as described in Hebrews 11.25, who chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The repentant sinner actually develops a hatred for his sin. He sees past the moment and sees it as this very thing, this sin, that keeps him from fellowship with God. And so the repentant sinner hates sin. It was the hatred of sin that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 7. In verse 15 he says, For that, that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And he continues in verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Paul expresses the sentiments of a truly repentant sinner and his hatred for sin. And then sixth, the sixth element, the sixth ingredient, turning from sin. True repentance must mean turning from sin, and this begins in the heart. The, the heart first turns from sin and then turns to God. The, change, the changed heart has no choice but to turn from sin and to God. There's a, an aching, a, a longing to be free from sin, and an aching and a longing to draw near to God. This is where that Greek word metanoia comes truly into play, a, a, a change. A true and lasting change occurs. 180 degrees, I've been walking in this direction, now I'm going to go in this direction. But this action is first and foremost an action of the heart. But also we need to understand that this true repentance must bear fruit. 
Remember how all these things we've spoken of so far are inward actions, actions taking place in the heart. But the command of Scripture is to bring forth the fruit of repentance. The inward grace must be manifested by the outward fruit. No fruit, no repentance. What we can see, you and I, and what we can observe as brothers and sisters in Christ are only these outward fruits of the inward grace. Only God knows the heart. Well, I've decided I'm going to file that phrase, elementary, my dear Watson. I'm going to put that on the shelf with all those other famous quotes that were never really said, such as, play it again, Sam. Humphrey Bogart never said it. Beam me up, Scotty. No, sorry. Luke, I am your father. No, was never said. So all those go on the shelf. But let me say this. Don't make the mistake of putting the elementary principles on the shelf. While you must move on from them and build upon them. But don't forget them. And especially this element of repentance. There's no salvation apart from repentance. So I would encourage you all this, this morning, examine yourself. Make sure that you have truly repented. If you've never come to that place in your life, I would encourage you to repent. Cry out to God that he would change your heart and give you the grace of repentance. Let's, you know what, let me just leave with one more quotation from Charles Spurgeon. He said, a man may hate sin just as a murderer hates the gallows, but this does not prove repentance. If I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of sin. I merely re regret that God is just. But if I can see sin as sin, as an offense against Jesus Christ, and loathe myself because I have wounded him, then I have a true brokenness of heart. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you. And Father, we are truly sorry for our sin. Father, thank you for the grace of repentance that you have given to each of your children. And Father, I would pray now that if there is one here today who doesn't know you, has never repented, that you would grant them repentance, that Father, that they could cry out to you, Believe in their heart, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name.